Doug. That is the Liberty Mutual, Limu Emu, and Doug campaign with today's guest, actor, writer, and creator David Hoffman. If you are an actor or if you're interested in the process of auditions for major commercial campaigns, uh, directors, television, uh, this one's for you. I met David while working on a show and I really liked him. Uh, He was great to work with and to be around, but he really surprised me with this hangout. Uh, David's funny and I knew him as an actor who played a funny character, so I I guess I was surprised when he had so much knowledge, uh, perspective, and experience to share with me. I really had no idea what a creative spirit David is, so this was a very fulfilling experience. Now, I prefer podcast episodes under 40 minutes or so, so I can get them in in one listening session, but our conversation with David was just going so well, we went uh, way beyond that. So we don't want to cut you short on what we heard from David. So we're going to split this session into two different episodes. Uh, The first one we made a little more technical. He shares his uh, audition process for booking the Liberty Mutual commercial campaign and then his audition process on There's Johnny with director David Gordon Green and Paul Reiser. Uh, And then in the second episode, we're going to go over some of his perspective and philosophy, his failures and successes as an actor and as an artist and a web series he created during the lockdowns uh, called George Washington is Here to Help. This one had to be recorded via Zoom, so it does have that wonky web connection sound. And trust me, I am so looking forward to solving that variable in future episodes. But in the meantime, here we go. A garden of pure ideology. Yeah, just a typical Super Bowl car ad. Or a hilarious beer ad. (laughs) Break was over 15 minutes ago, Mitch! I think... You're the best ever. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're in the bush. Well, how am I supposed to know? I've never been there. I don't always drink beer, but when I do... Wanna play Bobby? I think we're gonna be here a while. You know, Limu, after all these years, it's the ones that got away that haunt me the most. Because you're not like everybody else. That's why Liberty Mutual customizes your car insurance. So you only pay for what you need. What? Oh, I said. Oh, this is my floor. No! Only pay for what you need. Liberty, 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 Liberty. What was it like booking the, uh, the Limu, the Emu job? Right. How was, how was that with the, uh, cause that's a big commercial series, man. You're, you're kind of everywhere now. It's like you guys are duking it out. I think with uh progressive right now, they've got some funny ones too, with the dads, like you're becoming your dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Seen those. those are funny too, but dude, you're everywhere. Like you're on billboards and stuff. I make myself feel cool. I'll point it to Meg and I are driving by. I'm like, you know, that's David. I, I know him. I feel like I've told the story to family and friends so many times that I'm bored by it, but I'll try to make it interesting. Is that? No, no. Yeah. I haven't heard it. Yeah. I, uh, back in like uh, 2012, I was like, I am, I I hate commercials. I don't want to do commercials anymore. Uh, Two more years and I'm done. I'm not doing any commercial within two years. I don't want to ever have to do commercial, but I didn't like, I wasn't, I didn't have a date set or anything. And I kind of forgot I said that. And then I did this show in England and you know, I, I made good enough money that I didn't have to rely on commercials at least for a while. And so I told my agent who I was really close with, I was like, I'm out. I just, I can't do it. I can't do them anymore. And most of it is because of those three types of commercials that I was always auditioning for and had no shot at the sentimental or the non-funny or the selly ones. And it wasn't worth it to me to do that other, to keep showing up at auditions for the other one. So I stopped doing commercials and I stopped doing kids shows and I stopped doing sitcoms and I really wanted to, 
you know, do the things I wanted to do. And after there's Johnny, I didn't work for a year and a half and I was living off of savings. And I was like, I'm not going back to commercials. And I remember it was the Monday before Thanksgiving in 2018, which I don't know if other actors feel this way, but it's a really sad day because basically, you know, the business is going, you're not going to get a job between then and February. That's right. I forgot about that. I forgot that Hollywood basically just dies around Christmas. Basically Thanksgiving, the week of Thanksgiving. And then, you know, maybe there's a couple things, but you really don't have a shot at the big thing. So I, I woke up and I was pretty down. I had just started dating my wife like six months before. So this is her first November with me. And she was with her yoga teacher slash guru that day. And I, she called me later and I was like, yeah, I'm just feeling kind of down today. And I explained the whole thing. She's like, well, you know, I was talking to her teacher and she's like, telling her, you know, I used to do a bunch of commercials and stuff, but like, you want to shift your career. And, you know, she said, you should just do commercials. And I was like, oh yeah, well, she should just go teach yoga at the Y. And I like, I was really defensive about it. And like, you don't know, she doesn't understand my journey. And then I was, um, I thought about it as I do. And I was like, you know what, I've got this website and I want people to see me. And if I was like in a Super Bowl commercial, like then people might, and it's great, people might look me up. So I wrote to my agent who we stayed close and I was like, just kind of checking in about life and Thanksgiving. And then I was like, also, if you hear of any Super Bowl commercials, like, you know, I might be interested. And he's like, okay, well, let's have lunch when you get back. So the Monday after Thanksgiving, I called him. And this timing is important. And I said, when can you have lunch? And he said, Wednesday. Very important to remember it, Wednesday. So Wednesday, we go have lunch and we just kind of catch up. And then he's like, should we talk business? And I was like, I guess. And I was like, I don't, I, I only want to audition for things that I think I'm right for. And he's like, I don't know if it can work that way. I think I got to just send you out for everything. You never know. And I was like, eh. And he goes, and you wouldn't do a campaign, right? Because I had always said, like, uh, I, I, no, a campaign, I don't want to get tied to a campaign that I'm only known for that. And a lot of them are corny. And he, but then he goes, so you wouldn't do a campaign. And I said, well, here's my criteria for a campaign. It would have to be something that I find funny and interesting. It can't be silly. I said, I got to be able to do what makes me special. And I said, it's got to be a director I respect. Uh, then I could be interested. I didn't add the criteria, but I should have that I can't look like me in it. But uh, it turned out that this one was that. Um, so he then goes, how about Liberty Mutual? And at the time I thought that was a bank. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. He goes, I have somebody going in today. Today's the last day they're seeing people for this campaign. So if we had had lunch Thursday, this is a different story. So he shows me the description and I read it, you know, a man in an emu. And I was like, I love it. So we called the casting director and then I said, okay, you're going in this later today. So I went home and I had this mustache that I, cause I read the description. I was like, this guy needs a mustache. I had this really believable mustache and I put it on and put on like a, a jacket that I thought was right. And I like presented myself to my wife. She was like, Whoa. And I said, this is the character. And then I went and I went into the garage and I worked on it. Like I would work on a TV show or a movie or something in that acting class. Whereas before with commercials, I was like, okay, let me see the lines. Okay. I can do that. But I was like, no, I need to treat this like it's a real, acting job. And I went in and it was really surreal being back at one of the audition places. It was a little weird. And then, so I did the audition and I knew that the callbacks were the following Monday. So I knew I'd have to hear by Friday. 
I kept checking my phone Friday. I was getting nothing. And like, I was really anxious about it. I got really upset and I was like, I, th I thought this was meant to be. And I checked my spam and I, <laughs> it was in my spam. I got the call back and I remember I went to the call back and there were like 15 people in the room. And the director is a guy named Craig Gillespie. He's Australian. And he directed Lars and the Real Girl and I, Tanya. And so like, those are like movies where like, I like the tone. I like the, yeah. the acting. So that fit the criteria. And then, um, I did it a few times. He asked me about my mustache, if it was fake. And like, what's funny is in the past, I would have answered like, oh, yes, um, it's, I have it on my spirit gum. I've just been like really, but he goes, is it a fake mustache? And I went, what do you think? And he was like, I think it might be. And I go, well, you're going to have to find out. Or so like, I just kind of parried with him. I just like, and I also like looked around the room to be like, do I want to work with these people for the next few years maybe? And instead of just like, please hire me. And I remember the person beside him was typing furiously on her laptop as he was trying to direct me, which happens in auditions. It's not cool. I don't like it, but it happens. And as he was talking to me and she was typing, he closed the laptop on her fingers. And I was like, I love this guy. I want to work with him. And she was, a, she was like, sorry, sorry. That's and cool. uh, yeah, it was great. And then later that day I got home and they said, you're on a veil. And that was on Monday. And I knew we were, the fitting was like the following Monday. So I'd have to find out that week. And I just really tried to not think about it. And they didn't need me to come back in again. And then I remember Thursday, they asked if they could do a background check on me. So they did. And then Friday, so I knew we were getting close. And then, but I'd, I'd had things taken away before. So I just, I didn't want to count on anything. But I also wanted to kind of really just believe it. Like this is, this is going to happen this time. Yeah. And then um, that Friday morning, my agent called and he was like, you're going to get it. And it was just, uh, it was so, it was just this flood of relief and just excitement because what had happened was it was this grand experiment where I said, I took a real gamble on myself. Cause I remember after there's Johnny, I got a couple pilot auditions that I turned down and I told him, Andrew, I was like, I just don't connect with it, which is a big change for me because like, who am I to say that? Like you take a job. And, and then I ended up like firing my manager and agent and just, I was on my own and I wasn't working and my savings was dwindling. And I was like, I'm sticking to the program. I'm going to do stuff that I can be proud of that I feel, you know, works for me. And I stuck with it and it worked. And so it was just kind of this huge moment of, uh, not I was right, but like, okay, it was, it was right to believe like you stuck to your guns and it worked. So it was a huge, it was great. And, but then even then, like, you never know, maybe it doesn't get past testing or maybe, you know, it's, it fails on the first run. And so, but I just kind of, but from that point on, I was like, no, this is going to work. It's just going to work. It's meant to be. That's awesome, man. It's, it's pretty fun seeing you on everything. I know like Hulu runs you all the time you know it's it's cool seeing you man what was the uh audition process like for there's johnny it's so funny because i always thought like i always base it on like another job i got so it's going to happen like this it's going to happen like this it was so <laughs> casual it was i remember i got the audition on a friday they wanted me to come in saturday morning and i knew paul riser was involved that was all and mm -hmm. it was like on a lot somewhere like on sunset maybe Sunset Gower or Bronson. And it was a Saturday and 
it was one page. It was one page and like one more line on the next page. It was such a tiny scene, a scene we ended up not even shooting. And it was about me gambling. And there was not much to the scene at all, nothing. And I played around with it and I remember, you know, just like, all right, I'm just gonna improvise some stuff. And I remember going in the room and immediately noticing Paul Reiser's there. And I was like, oh, shit. Another like childhood, you know, hero. And uh, yeah. he, was, he was very warm and welcoming. And then I didn't know what David Gordon Green looked at like at the time. So I didn't know that was him. And he was just like pacing around the back of the room, not nervously, but just kind of like walking around. And then the cast director was there, Deanna. And then they're like, okay, well, let's just read it. And she's great. She's one of the better casting directors because she actually memorizes her lines and looks you in the eye and acts with you, which what a novel approach. I mean, but like, that's how it should always be. But um, she did it. And then I, um, I think I just kind of, I really just played with her and Riser was laughing and, and it wasn't that funny of a scene, but then um, I think they had me do it one more time. I think, Green gave me a, a, an adjustment. And then that was it. It was probably a total of a minute and a half in the room. And then as I'm walking out, Paul Reiser goes, he turns to David Gordon Green. He goes, I like Jim now. Because I guess maybe they thought the character wasn't that likable. And then I left. And then two months passed. I assumed I never got it. Oh, man. And then I'd get, I had forgotten about it. And then my manager said something to me. He's like, oh, I think you're going to get that. And I was like, wait, what? that's over, isn't it? He goes, I think you are. I didn't know where he was getting that from. And then another, then the holidays happened, probably like six weeks to a month later, they were like, okay, they want to offer you the role. So it was probably like four months after I auditioned. And it was just one audition for like a minute and a half. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. I would have thought it would have been at least three for something on that level, especially with those guys in the room. Yeah. But I wonder, like, I find that the, the more, um, accomplished and confident people are as directors, writers, and producers, the easier it is to see what you want and know what you want. And I I find that like when there's a ton of auditions, it's like, they don't know what they want. Why do they keep, they're seeing the same thing. What do they, but when they have a clear vision or when they see what they want, it's like, yeah, okay, we got it. And I don't think you need to draw it out forever. Yeah. Did you have a good experience on that show? I did. It was, it was, um, First of all, it was just crazy acting with Tony Danza. It was just a, it was a, such a surreal experience. And I got over it, but at the same time, it was always just kind of <laughs> really cool. And then Paul Reiser and just being able to like talk to those guys as peers was really uh, exciting. And it was like one of the first roles I've had where there was a good amount of drama involved. It wasn't just comedy. And just running with everything I learned in that acting class. It was kind of a playground for me to do that. So I really, uh, yeah, I just looked forward to each day getting to do stuff. So it was a good experience as a writer. Sometimes like it's just tough when I am doing something like, Oh yeah, I might, I might've done that differently or I might've done that scene differently. or I might've written this or that, but like I'm in somebody else's thing. So I, I didn't get hung up on it or anything. It was more like when I watched it back later, I was like, oh yeah, this is somebody else's vision. Because I had in my head, I was picturing something else that I was acting in. It wasn't that dramatically different, but it was like, oh, it's just a reminder. Every time you watch something that you didn't create, but you're in, you're like, oh, this is somebody else's vision. 
it's not mine, but the experience itself was great. I really liked working with those other guys who played writers. Yeah, they, they were a fun group. Yeah, and also just yeah. everything looked like we were in the 70s and the sets and everything. It was the costumes. It was, it was cool. It was definitely a fun meta job as somebody who wanted to work their way up in Hollywood, working on a boutique show about working your way up in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, especially like reliving the glory days a little bit. And I was like, oh, I'm catching up on the old stuff. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I snuck a couple of friends onto that set just to show it to them at night. And I was like, you should see this set. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Wait, so where are you now? Uh, well, now I'm in Louisiana getting my man card at a bunch of ways. I never thought I would it yeah. makes me feel, makes me feel better. Makes me That's feel pretty cool. Ish. Yeah. Oh, I'm really, yeah. I'm LARPing as a country guy who knows like, <laughs> what, anything about anything I like instagram a, anything that looks cool because i'm like yeah take that everybody who knew me before you can larp it but like eventually it just becomes who you are so much of my identity was like oh I, i'm not handy i don't know what i'm doing and then my wife was like you know she's like you are doing handy like people would ask well okay are you handy I'm like mm, not really because mm, you would need to such and such and then i would end up doing it and then I would do enough things. She's like, you can't answer anymore that you're not handy because you actually are. Yeah. And, but I just don't think of, didn't think of myself that way. And now like I have a forest and this land and a garden. And I was like, well, I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing, but apparently I do. So <laughs> you just got to own it at some point. The company that I've been producing for, for the last three years are more known for the, those direct like heartfelt commercials. Mm-hmm. And I would assume it's way harder to be like that than it is to just have fun with it. I, I feel like I would much rather just do what, like what you were a part of, which, which what it seems like all, uh, or at least the big three commercial insurance companies are a part of right now and just go, no, just do something stupid and hilarious. It's insurance. They'll remember. That's what we want. Rather than trying to do something so serious and so pure and so honest. And it's like, guys, you're selling something at the end of the day. Like, can we not take ourselves so seriously? I guess it depends on the product because, I mean, looking back on my commercial career, I mean, I auditioned for commercials for 15 years and then I quit for four years. And then oh, my really? first, yeah, my first one back was Liberty Mutual. And what happened was, uh, you know, there's, I, I noticed as an actor, because I would get sent out for everything and there were several different categories. There was the heartfelt, uh, mm -hmm. somewhat sincere, um, which can also, those fall in line with like the, the jewelry commercials, like yeah. the proposals and all those things. So that's kind of just very serious, a little schmaltzy, uh, a little over the top, but like it's supposed to, it's like a Hallmark movie. And then there were the ones that are just straight selling. You know, right now with 1.9% APR financing, you can do it and it's, you know, they're hitting you over the head. And then there's ones that are trying to be funny, um, but they're just not funny. But like they're, they're definitely trying, or at least I didn't find them funny. Mm -hmm. And then there was the ones that were just actually were funny. They're like 30 second short comedy films that happened to, you know, mention the product in some way. And I was yeah. auditioning for all four, but I knew as I was schlepping through traffic to Santa Monica where there's no street parking because it's, it's street cleaning day. And I walk in and there's a hundred people and it's a miserable experience. I would know right away. I have no shot at this if it's one of those first three. 
because it's just not me. It doesn't fit me. It'd be the same as me trying to audition for a soap opera. It's, it's just not a fit. And I know what my strengths are. And I always felt ridiculous. There were ones where it was like, oh, it's TGI Fridays. So we're going to bring you in four at a time. You don't know the other three people, but you're all going to pretend like your best friends and you're going to be sitting around a table. Nobody has a line. We just kind of want to see you guys having fun. And like, of course, there were one or two actors in there who just like wanted it so bad. So they would just act like they were like physically shake you and be like, ha, 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 and acting like, you know, we're best friends thinking. And I just felt so weird in those. But then if it was one that I genuinely found funny and they said, you guys, you know what? Make it your own. And this director likes things small and just you can improvise. I knew I had a really good shot if it was one of those. But so that's me. Maybe there are people who enjoy and they fit better doing those other kinds or it's just a gig or whatever. But like for me, I, if it doesn't feel like I'm selling and it just feels like a really funny 30 second film that I can improvise in, then then I love it. I mean, that's the best. And yeah. what we have with Limu, I think, is I don't know if I've coined this term, but I, I, I say it a lot. And it's, it's how I applied I apply it to my writing as well. It's absurd realism, which is that, you know, I'm riding around as if I'm a cop with, a, you know, prehistoric looking large bird who has sunglasses and we're telling people about insurance. And yet in the world that we're occupying, nobody, th- I mean, some people think it's strange, but like, it's just accepted. And we all play it real. Me, the other actors, everybody play it as if, this is, as if it's a normal thing. So that's where the realism comes in. And nobody's going, oh, it's a burn. What's going on? It's all played very real while there's absurd circumstances. And I love that. I think it's a, a whole genre of its own. And yeah. that to me is more interesting than a Selly commercial. George Washington. Yes. So do you still, ha- how many episodes left? Did you get to 40 yet? Oh yeah, they're all done. All 40. They're all done? So is it done? Is he retired? Well, you'd have to watch to find out, but uh, there is an ending. There's a definite ending. Okay, I didn't get to the end. I, just, I, got, I saw where you said you were only going to do 40. And then I, I had heard some stuff in the episodes where you were like, you need 30 days worth of leaves to, to wipe with. Oh, I, yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I wonder where he was when we thought it was only going to be 30 days worth. I started that in mid-March. So right at the beginning of the lockdowns. Well, let, let me interrupt just, just to be clear. We're talking about the George Washington series that you made in response to a coronavirus yes george washington yeah. is here to help george washington's here to help yeah whenever i have an idea that i'm actually gonna flesh out it can't leave me alone it's just got to be haunting me and it has to be crystal clear because there's so many things where i kind of start and then if it's just not there if i don't feel like doing it the next day i'm like that's not the thing it has to be something i'm thinking about all the time mm. and i remember i just got i was watching like a one of trump's briefings early on. And I was like, man, just having nothing to do with writing anything. I was just like, man, he seems a little shaky. Like uh, who would be better? Who would be better? And I was like, (laughs) I was like, I feel like even if Obama was doing it, like half the country would be like, oh, he's bungling it. It's just, we're so partisan. And I was like, who would I feel comfortable? You know, if they were like, listen, it's going to be okay. And I was like, and George Washington. And because at the time, I think I was showing my wife the John Adams miniseries with Paul Giamatti. And I always got excited when like George Washington, his part was so small. I was like, there's GW. And I used to say, 
I used, I don't know why I used to bring this up in conversation. I would tell people like, you know who I'd be most starstruck by if he walked in a room, it'd be George Washington. Just cause like he's on the $1 bill. He's on the quarter. We know him so well. Like he's probably the most famous person in this country. So I've, it's been a, a long time in the making this George Washington thing. And then I was like, man, what if I just had George Washington talk America through this? And I just immediately went online, ordered a George Washington costume and wig. And I was like, I'm doing this. And then I wrote the first five episodes and it was very formulaic. It was just talking to the camera about you know, washing your hands and all that stuff. But then I was like, oh, I feel like there needs to be a backstory. So then I had just done this interview with myself where I played a reporter named Peter Salazar who interviews David Hoffman. And I loved the Peter Salazar character. So I was like, why don't we make it that Peter Salazar went back in time? So then I was having so much fun with that. And then I wrote the next five episodes and it was more of the same, you know, social distancing. And then I wrote the next five episodes and by episode 15, I was bored. I was like, this is boring. So then I just decided that George would say like, okay, if Peter's going to take this back to 2020, as long as we get 300 million views, we'll come back and do more. And obviously there's not 300 million, but then there was this idea of Peter, maybe it's falling in love with George. And then from there, episodes 16 through 40, were a completely different type of show. It was a serial where each episode led to the next. And it, I just went wherever it was taking me. And it was so fun and interesting for me to just kind of go where I had nobody in the world telling me, you can't do that. Or why would, that doesn't make sense. Oh, I don't like that. You know what? You should this. Oh, change that. It was just like, I can do whatever I want. And I had created a whole world and a whole literally a whole world where it was absurd, but like there's a time machine. My therapist is a dog. I've got a scientist who's a cat and like, and Peter is in love with George and they're played by the same person and they kiss. And like, there's just all this. And my dead wife comes back and like, it was just, I, it, I had like a childlike fun doing it. It was like doing who's the boss again, where this is not to get picked up. It's not for any money. My website is my network and I get to, put whatever I want up there. And it was, it, I mean, it was a great way to spend the first three months, basically like the serious part of the lockdown. I was really engaged in that. And I mean, my memory of that lockdown will always be making George Washington. And my kids one day can watch that and be like, what was it like during the pandemic? And I can show them George Washington. I was enjoying it when you were sharing it on social media, because I was like, gosh, this is nice. You know, like nobody was joking about it. Like you mentioned not being a partisan issue, creativity aside, like just the fact that you shared it at all was really nice because it's not the virus podcast, but like, this has just caused so much conflict. It's just nice yeah. to, you know, it's just nice to, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is being silly about it is probably one of the most honest things anybody could have done. I think what I'm good at is I can make people laugh, while also secretly teaching them something. And yeah. one of the big messages in the series, it's about um, heroes and how they're temporary and fathers and sons. There's a big father-son message in there. And then towards the very end, like I was working out stuff about my parents' divorce and kind of equating how the hyper-partisan um, way our country is right now and how I feel like, because I won't say, I'm on this side, I'm on that side, I feel, and I'm getting grief for it, which is a lot of what social media was, just feeling guilty for not 
saying, oh, I'm definitely all in with you. I'm definitely all in with you is how I felt with, well, I did it with Peter's parents, Peter Salazar's divorce, parents divorce, how, you know, you've got two sides saying completely different things and you feel like you love them. So you need to agree with both sides and you just feel like nobody's letting you just have your own experience and saying, I love you no matter what. And so, I mean, there's a big, it's a, it's a comedy, it's absurd realism, but like, I mean, we deal with George Washington owning slaves. Like there's a lot of real stuff in there too. And, um, but yeah, like, like we were talking about earlier, how, where there's a hidden message. Yeah. People might take away, Oh, it's about George Washington and time travel and all this, but really it's about hero worship and, um, the state of our, what, what divorce does in any way. Cause I think we are, George has a line where he says our country is a four year old child in the middle of a divorce right now. And we don't, and there's, there's people who are taking sides and there's the, then there's the rest of us who are in the middle who are like, ah, I just want, I just want you guys to love me. And I just want us to be a happy family again, please. Yeah. I don't like stuff that's so on the nose because we've got, mm-hmm. there's like, 400 cable and internet things talking about what's going on. And it's so, um, there's no metaphor anymore. There's no analogy. There's no, uh, in a lot of stuff, it's just so like, this is what's happening and this is how you should feel about it. And instead of like, here's a little thing and then you're going to watch it. You're going to think about it. And then maybe two years from now, you'll realize I was actually talking about this the whole time, or this applies to your marriage or this applies to your relationship with your father. Do you have a good example of one of those? I can think of things that I've written. Um, oh, yeah. But I'm actually reading Arthur Miller's autobiography right now, and it's, it's really great. And he's... Oh, really? Yeah, I'm at the part where he's talking about writing Death of a Salesman. And he was saying that, you know, on the surface, I guess, it could look like it's about, you know, a, an aging salesman who didn't get the glory he wanted. And but he's talking about like after the first performance, there was no applause and people were just like looking at each other and some, a lot of grown men were crying and then people like got up to talk to each other and somebody remembered to applaud and they were just like applauding like crazy. And then the main thing is that like, it was always men came up to him and were like, that was my dad. That was my dad. Wow. And it's like this thing that like, maybe we're not ready to talk about in our own families, but like when it's put there for you, uh, in front of your face in a way that's entertaining and engaging, you just start feeling feelings. And I think for a lot of people, maybe it's like, why am I feeling this? I don't know why this is affecting me so much. And then if you, you know, do any sort of self-examination, you can start to see like, oh, this is, yeah, that guy reminds me so much of, it's not the exact same situation, but it reminds me of my dad. And he said, he was talking about, he thought it was kind of an anti, cause he did it in like 1948. He thought it was, sort of an anti-capitalist thing, mm-hmm. he thought. And then they did it in China 30-something years later, and they're like, oh, no, no, this applies to us too. I mean, this is 100%. So even his thoughts of what it might be, it was more about human emotion. And when, it, when something actually speaks to you, and that's, that's my goal with all my writing is to break through all the noise of I'm, I'm dug in on this position. So I want to see if this agrees with me or not. And I got to see if I'm against it or not, instead of just being like, Oh yeah, this reminds me of childhood or this reminds me of just something that is universal, just universal themes, I think is the way to reach the most people possible. I'd like to even say, I try to do that too, but you're right. I get so caught up in the noise. Sometimes I'm almost embarrassed. I've got a project 
that I've just written myself into such a hole. And I've got, I feel like I've got myself and everyone around me fooled because they're just ready to throw money into it. And they're like, man, it's going to be so good. Mm-hmm. It's going to be so good. It looks so cool. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what it's actually about though. And now you got to live up to there. Yeah. Yeah. Now they've set a bar. It's, it's, well, they like it because of the concepts around it and the right. things we've done with it. But I don't actually know what it's like all the stuff you just said, you know, where someone comes up to you afterwards and they go, man, that really made me think of my dad. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's like void of a soul. It's like a replicant. I mean, and there is a there is a market for that. Yeah. <laughs> for, for me, I look back to, you know, one of the times in my life when I was most joyfully creating. And I remember in this is a funny story from There's Johnny, is that in sixth grade, one of my favorite shows was Who's the Boss? And looked up to Tony Danza. He was the man. I wrote an episode of Who's the Boss in sixth grade. And I went to my teacher, like we had this special class where they had a video camera. And I was like, I want to shoot a Who's the Boss. And she's like, go for it. And so I cast everybody and we shot it. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure it was a bit of a mess. The, concept, the whole storyline was that uh, we were, the, the, the gang was at the mall and Mona and Samantha both like the same pair of shoes. And they're the same size and there's only one pair left. And so we end up in a big shoe fight and blah, blah, blah. And one of my favorite parts was for the credits I mean, I didn't know how to do any kind of graphics. So it was just a poster board with, you know, written by David Hoffman, directed by David Hoffman, starring David Hoffman, produced by David Hoffman. And I just put my name all over it. And then I, I, when I got cast and there's Johnny and I heard that Tony was in it, it was pretty exciting. And then I met him. And then once I got comfortable with him, somewhat comfortable, I, I told him about it. I was like, you know, I, I did an episode of, was the boss when I was in sixth grade. And I think he was a little distracted. He's like, oh, that's cool, man. That's cool. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we kind of moved on from it, but it was, it was exciting. But anyways, my whole point is I look back, like I remember when we shot that shoe fight, I don't know if I've ever laughed that hard. I was having such a great time and I wasn't thinking about, okay, will this be picked up? Will, who's going to pay for it? Is it going to get distribution or anything like that? I was just having fun creating. And then in, in, when I was in Groundlings in LA, you know, the whole deal was you write these sketches and then they would be in a weekend show. You're not getting paid. And, but it even started to enter in there because like you write tons and tons of sketches, but then the director chooses which ones get into previews. And then the audience chooses basically by their laughter, which ones go further. And that kind of messed me up a little bit because I started writing for that result. And in the end, when I left the company, I realized that the stuff that I really, really enjoyed writing that made me giggle and just made me think was not working, was not getting laughs. And afterwards, you know, it would get cut and people in the audience would be like, I love that one. And I was like, why weren't you laughing? They're like, well, it's not like a, you don't laugh at like, it's more just so enjoyable and interesting. And I thought it was funny, but you don't, there's not like laugh lines. And I realized that all those years there, I was trying so hard to fit, to please the director and the audience, which it worked for a while, but I wasn't fulfilled. And so from that point on, I went through this transition where it's like, how can I, write in a way that I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. And it's okay if it doesn't go anywhere. I'm just writing for me. 
And that's when I, I made this animated series about my childhood called Army Brat, because I grew up on army bases. And it was, uh, I used pictures from my childhood and like, I'm, I'm not a good artist uh, drawing wise. So I was just drawing these pictures and I was making the first episode. I didn't know there would be any more episodes. I was just making a short film, three minutes long. I didn't want to hire a kid to play me. I wanted to tell a childhood story. And so I finally was like, how can I do this right now by myself? So I came up with this kind of collage idea. And halfway through, there was a line and I was like, oh man, I can't say that. Because such and such from Groundlings would think that that's dirty or such and such from this would think uh, that's not funny. Oh, what if my mom saw that? And then I just, I, I just had this moment and I said, just make it as if nobody but you will ever see it. Just do that. And then I've just, anytime I get stuck, I just remember that I have to just create something that I want to watch. And that's my only, that's the only arbiter for me. Is this something I would want to watch and I, I would enjoy and just accept that not everybody will, but it's just got to be, I got to be okay with it. Well, thanks, man. I guess that, uh, that concludes our masterclass. That was really good. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing that. I think a lot of people can say that, but uh, I think it's because they can say that because they're used to hearing it. There's a difference between saying the paraphrased version of what you said and then sharing the, the soul of what you just said, where it comes from and why yeah. and, and how you came to figure that out. Because it's like how you know, like that that's the way it's got to be. And that's that's really cool, man. I really appreciate you sharing that. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed our fifth episode of Filmmakers and Advertising. And I want to say thanks for bearing with us. We did go on a bit of a hiatus. I had an unfortunate death in the family and uh, everyone supported me while I took the time to take care of what we needed to do to uh, deal with that loss. I want to remind you the next episode is part two with David Hoffman. Uh, he's going to go deep into a lot of his experiences and how he got to where he is today. And it's really, really good. I just, I want to say you should listen to that one. We couldn't tell which one should come first, but um, yeah, thank you for coming back. From Cry. A creative production and post-production house in New York City. I'm Cody, and this is Filmmakers and Advertising.